stops. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that has a season for everything. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, is Dr. Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. Good day, Captain. How are you? I'm exceptionally well, mate. It's exciting specifically because it's earnings season. Very exciting. We are doing cartwheels when we're not head down, bum up, trying to get through all the detail. We are absolutely in the fire hose season of earnings. Every company in the ASX, almost, is going to report earnings in the month of August. And we sit here on the morning of the 17th, and we're about halfway through, give or take, the month, when most companies will tell us exactly what's going on inside the walls. So today on the podcast, it's going to be an earnings palooza. We are going to try and run through some of the biggest, best, brightest, and a couple of the least (laughs) impressive results of earnings season this week. And... Because we love our listeners and they seem to think we're okay too, we'll answer some mailbag. So, Doc, let's get into it with the big T. Uh-huh. No, no, not your favourite Tesla. The other big, the, the bigger big T, more with an extra T and R in the name, we're going to talk about Telstra. Telstra. Tell me, now, here's, here's what I love about this. See, I own some Telstra shares, unfortunately. I've, I've, I've paid financially for that sin. It's a recommendation of mine at ShareAdvisor, I will also say, and... During the week, the shares are up 6% on the back of earnings. It mm. is time for celebrations, is it not? Oh, well, about 6%. Yeah. Not too bad. Fend up Shares are over three bucks again now. You know, it's called, you know, having low expectations. You know, you have like, <laughs> or, or as I said, zero expectations. When you have oh, zero expectations, kind. then, um, you know, anything anything works. Right. Um, what happened at Telstra this year? Okay. Mate? So, uh, should I start with the good news or the bad news? Well, let's let's start with the you, let's let's get yeah, the bad news first. Right? Yeah, if it was me, I'd start with the good because you because you love Telstra so uh, much. I, I thought you might start. I love with this the bad. company <laughs> in a very cynical way. Oh, but, but okay, so um, the profits were down nine percent. Okay, it was something like three point five billion. Lots not of great. money. Not great. Um, and uh, that's mostly because of um, average revenue per customer is down. Right. Um, so tell me about average revenue per customer. So telcos like to talk about this. They call mm. it ARPU, average revenue per user. What is it and why does it matter? Mm. It, it, well, it matters because it basically gives you a, a view on um, you know, how much margin pressure is there, how much competitive uh, pressure is there. Right. Um, it, you'd rather want it to go up or if not, stay steady. <laughs> yep. um, but it, it, the, the problem for Telstra here is uh, ARPU, as they say, is, mm-hmm. is down because of, again, intense competition in NBN. Everybody's offering the same services on top of NBN's network. Right. Um, so that's not really helping. I mean, it's not that Telstra is the only one hurting here. Others yeah. are hurting too. Um, and and so in the good years, ARPU doesn't matter quite so much, right? Because customers are coming in the door. Things are good. Life is good. You always want ARPU to go up. But it's kind of been not as big a deal when the market's growing. Now, the market's maturing a little bit. There's not so many customers to go around and how much you get per customer becomes more relevant, at least in, in yeah. relative sense. Yeah, that's true. But here's the thing, right? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, Telstra is doing what it could. So it did gain customers. It did a good job of gaining customers. It did, right? right? Yeah. It yeah. added customers. So it, it's doing what it can, but it, there is... In an industry which, to I look at it as like a utility, right? I mean, it provides mm-hmm. a utility. The other people providing the same utility, you know, give or take a little bit here and there. Right. Um, you know, whose network is better and so on and so forth. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's very difficult to maintain pricing here, right? If there's intense competition, which is really the case in this uh, uh, sort of mobile and NBN space, and and therefore the yeah. you know while it is growing its users, ARPU is under pressure, which basically means that you know profits are not growing as fast as as they mm-hmm. would like it to grow. Um, lack of differentiation is the problem, really. So, um, you know, I mean, in the current circumstances, I would say the results are okay. I mean, 
That's, a, that's almost a compliment from you about Telstra. <laughs> I'd, I'd say it's okay. I'll take that. Yeah, it's, I'd say it's okay. I mean, you know, it's, it's a hard, really tough environment. Mm. Markets, mm. as you said, not growing as fast, but still Telstra is adding customers. Mm. Um, they have promised cost cutting as they did. You know, we talked about this you yeah. know, a few podcasts back. Yeah. Uh, they're going to try to recover some by cost cutting. Um, so, yeah, I mean. The company did say that uh, allegedly. Some of the new the new cost cutting program, the Telstra twenty twenty two program, as they're calling it, or T twenty two for short, because they mm. like those things. They're saying some of those benefits are already coming through. Color me skeptical, mate, but I reckon if you announced something six weeks ago, you can't claim credit for any of the <laughs> any of the benefits surely in the results, can you? Yeah. I, Isn't I that a little bit of a little bit of yeah, PR spin going yeah, that's on? That's a little bit of PR spin. I wouldn't count it. I mean, I would also be very skeptical of all the cost cutting that they'd say they're right. gonna do. I mean, you know, th- there's always this issue of morale and so on. You know, if you're gonna mm-hmm. you know get rid of so many people, I mean it has impact mm-hmm. on the morale, impact on the organization. Um yeah. They don't really uh, have a choice though, do they? I mean that's kind they of don't. like it's it's this or this or you know, yeah. well, for Andy Penn, the CEO, if he doesn't get this right, he's pretty much gone. He's got to do something. Yeah, and I, I, I think this is the only thing he can really do, right? You yeah, know, right. <laughs> control the costs, um, you know, offer, uh, you know, they've streamlined the number of offerings they've got and so on and so forth. So I think I think he's doing what he can. We just have to realize that this is not a high growth industry. Mm. Um, yeah. Was there enough in the numbers to make you change your famously bearish mind about Telstra? Are you, are you even slightly... More bullish about Telstra as a result of this, or maybe just less bearish. Can I say that? Um, I'm less. Look, look. The thing is this. I, I mean, with Telstra, I think you need to get sort of the valuation right. Yeah. And I mean, if you buy it at sort of at a cheap valuation, you can mm-hmm. make some money off it. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't looked at it that clearly or closely to uh, sort of have a view. Uh, I mean, I thought you know, if they can sort of hit their guidance, there, you know. Um, Maybe you know it's okay. Um, again, like I, I'm not bearish. I don't think you know this is one of those my you know walking dead type of companies. <laughs> so, so it's going to grow. We know about those ones. Yeah, it's not going to grow a, a lot. It's not going to die immediately. But it's you know um, yeah. As a growth investor, I wouldn't buy it. But I mean, I can see totally those people who want franking credits and uh, income. There's a stock maybe for them. Fair enough. I uh, I have to say I was I was cautiously impressed with the results. They were less bad than maybe I had expected, the market had expected. Mm, That's why the shares jumped. The company reaffirmed its guidance, but did say that there were going to be challenging market conditions ongoing. And that to Mm. me, I got to say, I want to be, I own the shares. It's a recommendation. I want to be bullish. When I hear someone say guidance is fine, but things are going to be tough. I kind of feel like they're setting the stage for disappointment at some point where they can look back and say, but we said it was going to be tough. This is how Mm. these things work. Um, That worries me. I do love the 5G network. I do think they are in the box seat. Uh, the ARPU number, as you say, Doc, really concerns me, or at least has me cautious to some degree. I'm a little bit mindful that, um, you know, it's going to be very, very hard to try and raise or even hold prices when you get the likes of TPG and in uh, in mobile and the NBN doing its thing in in broadband. I think it's going to be a uh, it's going it's going to be a tough, tough couple of years for Telstra. I reckon. Modly for money. Now I want to go from the not the sublime, the, maybe the ridiculous to the sublime. I love wine. Do you like wine? I love Penfolds. I'm glad you do. Funny you should mention that because this week, (laughs) the maker of Penfolds and Wins and Lindemans and some others, Treasury Wine Estates, as the company is now called, released some results. And off the back of Telstra's kind of uh, mediocre but okay and kind of better than expected, Treasury's profit up 34%. Cracker. Isn't it a spectacular? That is cracker. I, I, so this, again, I will say is a recommendation at Share Advisor, not to not to toot my own horn or to just to, just for full disclosure. But I really, I don't know, unfortunately, I really love this company because I think the tailwind is pretty impressive. Tell us about what, what drove Treasury's result this quarter, this half. Yeah, I, I thought it was a cracker. I love Penfolds. Uh, I love actually a number of their uh, brands. I think they've got awesome brands. Um, 
uh, to me, it is a story of, you know, I would say a story of two tales or two sides. Mm-hmm. Um, the good news mm-hmm. is Asians love treasuries wine. Hi, hi. This, like is, this is awesome because, uh, you know, the sales were up like something like 39, 40%. That's mm-hmm. like huge. On top, and this is this is the other thing, on top of volume increase, which was only about like 23, 24%. In other words, we are giving them price increases, you know, uh, and which, which I thought is really good. Um and I think, to me, it looks like this is really good because the the emerging markets in Asia, uh, they offer a, you know a long runway for growth. Yeah, this is a huge population yep. with the rising incomes, and you know if they love this wine, and there's an opportunity to build a branding and you know build a distribution and so on, and mm. you know, be really, really ride the the tailwind, as they yeah. say. Yeah. This 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 is why I really like it. Mm-hmm. You know, in its other segments, I mean, the, you know, the the Europe segment is doing okay. Mm. Uh, the other one that was not, I mean, as I said, tale of two sides. I mean, uh, the Americas is struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, volume was down. Um, so his net sales was down. Um, management is, I think, uh, pretty um, fair and open in saying that, you know, this is work in progress. So mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're looking to um, sort of improve the distribution and so on. I think they're, um, so, I mean, you know, if they can improve Americas yeah. while they have this tailwind for Asia, this is like, you know, this is looking like a, you know, multi, you know, minimum five year, maybe a decade long uh, growth, growth story. I, I love this. Uh, the guidance was very good. Um, yeah, the 25%, oh, that 25% on like a 34% growth. Like that's, that's incredible. You take that. No, I'll take that. I mean, yeah, this, I, I really thought this was a cracker. This is one of the, you know, the one of the few ones that I think, you know, I thought was like really, like really up there for me. Mm. Um, I like it. I was really impressed. I got to say, the, the Asian story is not just a story of volume growth, but also really impressive value growth. Mm-hmm. I think I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I'm going to say something like volume up 12%. Anytime you can sell 12% more wine is a good year. But the, I think the revenue in Asia, so the volume is up 12, the revenue is up at 25, 28, something like that percent. So not only are they getting more Asian consumers and Chinese consumers in particular to drink Penfolds, Lindemans, Wins, lots of treasury wines, but they're doing it at ever-increasing average prices. And I think this is the this is the bright story for for, for treasury. If you think about what it, what it takes to make a bottle of wine. So yes, you've got to pick some grapes and yeah, different vineyards have different prices based on how good or otherwise the vineyard's supposed to be. And yes, if you've got to leave it on, you know, in the cask for another couple of years or in the bottle for a few years, you pay some storage costs, there's costs of capital, those things are real. But if you think about the the, the, the price of making a $10 bottle of wine mm. and the pro, the cost, I should say, just to be clear, the cost of a $10 bottle of wine and the cost of a $100 bottle of wine, mm. they're not all that different, not right? That different, so if you yeah. can get price increases over time, if you can convince more and more people here in America and importantly in China and Asia to buy Grange or Bin 707 or uh, Wins Michael Shiraz, for example, some of those really high-priced wines, if you can get more people to buy them and increase the price of that scarce product, that's a license to print money. And so far, they're doing a really, really great job of getting it done. Yeah, absolutely awesome. Modly Fool Money. Mate, let's go to another one that's, I've got to say, surprise. It continues to surprise me. Mm. And and this is a business that supposedly was going to be dead a few times over the last decade or so, particularly <laughs> in the last few years. And that's JB Hi-Fi. Now, JB is kind of so, supposed to be victim number one in, in the in the Amazon war. Now, I did hear during the week that Amazon have opened their uh, next warehouse in Sydney. This one, mm-hmm. double the size of the Melbourne warehouse. Yep. So they're not they're not they're not uh, they're not slowing down anytime soon. But JB Hi-Fi just keeps getting it done. It does. I mean, this was like I don't know. 
I didn't expect it. There you are. <laughs> so, so this was like, and, and I think the market also hasn't been expecting it. Like, I mean, the market has been kind of, well, there have been a lot of short sellers. This is like high on the short sellers list. Right, right. So short selling, again, for those people who don't know, is basically, you know, borrowing the shares and selling it with the hope of buying them cheaper later. So you make profit when the, when the share prices fall. So these guys are betting um, that the share price is going to fall. And I mean, but if you look at the results, I mean, it looks like what 22% mm. revenue growth, 35% profit growth. <laughs> That's just insane. Isn't I mean, I would not have expected. From a relatively mature business in a very competitive category. Totally. With, I mean, we talk about falling prices of Apu for, for Telstra. The price of the average television keeps falling. You know, you, you buy a, uh, well, I mean, I know the Kogan prices. I happen to be a, a Kogan fan. But, you know, the price of a 40-inch or a 55-inch TV have just fallen through the floor. You would pay 10 grand for a 40-inch TV 15 years ago. You're now paying, what, three, 400 bucks for a 40-inch TV? That is right. Um Anyone can go get anything for, for, you know, computers are cheaper. Almost anything you can buy is getting cheaper, except for mobile phones, as it turns out. And JB just managed to keep finding ways to grow. Now, we should say some of the growth did come from their good guys' acquisition, so they don't get a free pass entirely. But given, as you said, one of the most shorted stocks on the ASX, given the fact that people have been waiting for this thing to die, tell me, is this a stay of execution or is JB Hi-Fi genuinely doing something different that gives it a, a, a more of a long-term lifeline maybe than people thought? You know, I have mixed feelings about this in the sense that I, I, to me, it looks like that Amazon has not yet come in Australia in like full force. As you said, mm. you know, they're opening up distribution centers just now. Um, th- that's part of it, I think. So mm. I think people have been predicting sort of the online <laughs> related yeah, right, demise exactly. and they maybe have been early. So that's one part of the story. So you think uh, they're early, not wrong? Is that, is that your... Well, I don't know. As I'm saying, okay. I, I'm not sure. Because, I mean, the execution here is really good. They're, they're doing a good job mm-hmm. of execution. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they acquired uh, good guys. They, they're paying down debt using mm-hmm. their cash flow mm-hmm. to pay down debt. So they're being, you know, prudent of the fact that, you know, this is a, this is a high fixed cost business, right? So you, you don't want to have too much debt on your balance sheet and things yeah. like that. So I think they're doing a good job of, of managing the business. The uh, I mean, the other part might be that, you know, when you want to buy your $2,000 TV or, you know, mm-hmm. $700, $800 TV, maybe you want to actually touch and feel and look at it, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. and then that's where having retail shops and going there and checking them out and, you know, having people explain to you all the features and, you know, what you can do with them, maybe is useful. And maybe those are things that you can't mm. uh, get online. I mean, I don't Except know. Except that we know that Best Buy, sorry, Circuit City went broke in the US. There was that phenomenon called showrooming where people would go to a store like JB, find the TV they want, then jump on Amazon and buy it cheaper. Yeah. It is, it, it, do you think there's maybe a path for, for JB to be successful in this world? Um, you know, mate, I really don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's an answer. I, I really don't have an answer. Because at one part, I feel that, you know, maybe, you know, they've got these really, you know, tiny looking shops, which, mm. you know, full of these gadgets and they can get <laughs> their people to to show people and get people, you know, coming right. back again and again, maybe right. have some discounting, some deals. On the other hand, I mean, maybe it is possible that people are going to do exactly as you said. They're going to look at, they're going to have a look at JB and then buy from, you know, Kogan or, um, or Amazon. Um, yeah. Either... I mean, long term, I think if JB does not have a significant online offering, I think mm. I would say that the business is in danger. Yeah, that's my thing. But uh, I mean, I've, you could have said I'm mean, giving a couple of examples. And you know, Best Buy's in the US has yep. 
done reasonably well to sort of you know survive. Walmart is is you know, is um, competing back against mm. um, just overnight. Walmart had like you know a forty percent increase in their e-commerce sales. I know so shares are up nine percent overnight. Yes, Walmart shares don't Walmart. go. Walmart. Tesla up six percent this week. Walmart's up nine percent. What's going on? Back to the future. Yeah, we're back to the future. So I mean, maybe it is possible. Maybe the, you know, <laughs> but but I mean, it is mm. definitely. I mean, you know, uh, Amazon.com is coming and it's knocking mm. on the door. It is hard, mm. but I give them full credit for what they've done thus far. They've proven uh, skeptics wrong. Yep. I don't know. Do you have a different take? No, look, I don't really. I think that they mentioned they have four different distribution options based on where the person lives. They're doing three hour distribute delivery in the CBDs at the moment, JB Hi-Fi, which is pretty impressive. Oh, that's I think, impressive. I've got to say, at some level, I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I don't blame. Well, I do blame them. Large companies find it hard to change, and so I can I can imagine that a, that a large company. So take Telstra, right? Telstra has seen the future and has spent twenty years as a public company desperately trying to change, and it's just you know it's 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 tripping over its own feet desperately trying to become a new economy company, and it really has struggled for cultural and and technological and business reasons to to make that change. That being said, so so I get that 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 can happen. That being said, no. No retail business, particularly no electronics retail business, can claim to have been caught blindsided. They have seen what's happened in the US. They have seen Amazon destroy Circuit City. They've seen Best Buy's response. They know how these industries can change. They have they have no defense to say we didn't know what was happening. They can say, well, we tried and failed, or they can say we didn't believe it and didn't do it. But either way, they're, the, you know, the blame lies at their feet. I think JB's done a very, very good job. I, I ordered something from JB Hi-Fi, a, a set of earbuds, um, I want to say a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago. They, they said they'd be there by the following – I ordered Thursday. They said they'd be there by the following Monday, and they arrive Friday lunchtime. Oh. And, you kind of, and this is I'm in, a, I'm in a, a relatively regional area in New South Wales, Southern Highlands. You know, that's a that's a pretty good result. And I have to say, to your point, they are doing everything they can to compete and compete well. Uh, Amazon is is on their doorstep, but JB is doing, I think, everything they need to do. I don't. I'm still not sure I'm prepared to take the risk on JB. I have to say, I think it's one thing to say we're we're responding well to Amazon. It's another thing to say, given Amazon's famed customer centricity and long term focus, do you really want to back anyone to not be kind of trampled by Amazon? I think that's a that's a gutsy bet, and that's why the short interest is so high. So, yeah. uh, look, all credit to, to JB. Really impressed with what they're doing. I think I'll probably leave it for other people to take that risk, though, I have to say. I'll just say that, you know, I wouldn't short it. Mm. <laughs> I would not short it. I would not buy it, but I would not mm-hmm. short it. You know, there's a difference there. Um, but, yeah, I agree there. Modly full money. Mate, we're, we're absolutely piling through this uh, earnings season. We're going to keep going. Dominoes. Speaking of companies at high short interest that, that, that people have very different opinions about. Hmm. So this is, the, this is the pizza maker who now, if I'm right – more of its profits come from outside Australia than inside Australia. I think it's I think it's right to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you know we think about Domino's as the local pizza shop, and people have their views about Domino's pizza. Some love them, some hate them, some find them okay. Uh, I'm a bit partial to their barbecue meat lovers, for for the record. Uh, it's been a high growth business. This is a share price that was at seventy seven dollars not too long ago, then back to fifty odd bucks. It disappointed the market with. A fifteen percent growth, which you kind of, you know, Telstra shares managed to jump on on going backwards. <laughs> Domino's delivered fifteen percent growth, and the shares fell. What happened to Domino's, man? And what's where, where are we sitting? So, so I think part of that, you know, something falls, something rises. Part of that is, you know, what the expectation was, and the price to earnings ratio, I guess, uh, for uh, Domino's was pretty high, mm. uh, maybe thirty plus <laughs> or something. And Telstra is probably around ten. So, <laughs> so, so you know, low growth is okay. Whereas, you know, for Domino's, I think the expectation was higher growth. Right. So I think the thing is that they, I'm not sure whether they missed their guidance or not, but you know. 
15% profit yeah, they, rise. They did. So they 20% missed. was the guidance. Okay. So 20% of profit, uh, guidance and, you know, they came in at 15, which is, you know, quite a bit below. Um, still 136, 140 million dollars of profit. That's a yeah. lot of pizzas. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> really. Right. And, and, and that's a profit. It's not even revenue. Right, right. <laughs> revenue is like in billions, right? in Australia, in Japan, in the Netherlands, in France. Yeah. These are not you know, the tradition, France isn't a traditional pizza-eating country, at least not for the rest of us. Yeah, well, the sushi-eating country. So here, here's what I think happened, right, right. right? In this case, they did not meet their guidance largely because I think they got lower same-store sales, which mm -hmm. is essentially like-for-like -like sales mm -hmm. comparison across the uh, store base. Um, it was down, it was not down, it was only up in Australia and New Zealand by 4.5%. Mm. Now, mm. I don't know about others, but 4.5% same-store sales growth looks pretty good to me. Doesn't it? It looks pretty <laughs> good to me. Also, when they, when they, they, grew, they grew store count meaningfully too. So it's exactly. kind of four and a half same-store sales is good if you if you opening new stores. If you can open new stores and get 4.5%, yeah. that's pretty good. Yeah, because you know, you'd be cannibalizing some, right? And they right. seem to open a lot near what they've mm -hmm. already opened, mm -hmm. you, you know. So so that that is interesting. Europe, same-store sales was up like 5.7%. That's, again, very, very good in my books. So... Um, I think the issue here is, I think this is the problem. I think maybe a lot of people follow Domino's. It's, as you said, it's a highly shorted. It really um, is. So uh, some people were expecting higher growth. Mm. Um, they have guided for less than that, yeah. I guess. That's part of it. The I, I think the longer term, I think, question, as you say, is, you know, how much can they grow elsewhere? Mm. Like, how much can they grow in Japan, right? right how much can right. they get them from eating sushi to, you know, eating pizza? <laughs> Maybe they can have pizza sushi. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Um, so that, that's part of it. And the other thing is that, you know, the, the story of, of expansion in Australia is, you know, are you going to expand? Keep. How do you expand when you've got so many stores? Yeah, right, you're going to be yeah. opening and cannibalizing. So that's probably. You know what, though? I thought that five years ago with Domino's. Like this is exactly. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm not disagreeing. No, with you. no, you're, this, this, you're, this you're, is you're. this is this is the bear case, right? Yeah, I mean, totally. you can say, oh, it's going to be cannibalized. You know, uh, Japanese are not going to eat any more pizza because right, they don't right. only have sushi. So, I don't know. I mean, this result result looked good to me. The guidance mm -hmm. is good. Uh, the stock probably sold off because, I mean, it's it's a bit expensive, right? But, yeah. I mean, if you can maintain that growth over, like, five years, then it's probably not expensive again. We've talked a lot about that, and I think this is, you know, I... I it's I hard to get. Well, I sometimes like to call earnings season expectation season because it kind <laughs> of is less about what the company actually does than what what people expected in yeah. the past and also what the company is expecting in the future. And in this case, as you say, if you said to me, do you want to own a company growing profit of 15%? I'd say, like, absolutely, Yes. The question is the price, and that's the market responding to. Okay, fifteen percent is good, but it's not as good as we thought. Mm. And we'd set, we, you know, we'd set a price, in, or the market had set a price based on a higher level of growth because they believe the company could do something better than this, and that the guidance would be better. And so, to some degree, it's a question of expectations of the company and of the market relative to the actual performance. You don't necessarily get any bouquets, for, as we said, for growing fifteen yeah. percent. The flip side is Telstra declined, and the share price went yeah, up because exactly. the expectations were simply worse. Yeah, absolutely. Modly for money. Now, I want to talk about. Speaking of expectations, things getting worse, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Ha <laughs> ha. Oh, that's not nice. Half eight viewers have just, have, 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 sorry, I've just switched off. Thank you very much, Doc. CBA's uh, profits were down. <gasps> what happened to the profit machines that are Australia's banks? Uh, well, so profits were down like what? Like about almost 5%. Almost to nine, five, yes. 9.2 9 billion. Um, that's bad, right? And, and Well, that's bad. But here's the thing, <laughs> right? They, they talk about what they call cash profits. Mm-hmm. From continuing operations, which basically <laughs> underlying means, core, uh, underlying after core adjustments. after yeah. adjustment, which means you know you take out. I guess okay, <laughs> maybe it's fair to take out all one-off costs such as Austrac fine, uh, costs of Royal Commission, mm -hmm. that discontinued operations and so on. Maybe it's fair. It's okay. Um, to me, 
there were two interesting things. Okay. You know, and and you know, again, um, maybe because I'm a bit bearish on the housing market. A bit but, bearish. But a, bit, uh, a little bit. All right, <laughs> so two things, uh, both un- uh, I think unfortunately a bit bearish. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I, I noticed was, uh, oh, well, actually, I'll say the first thing is not bearish, but it's interesting. Okay. okay. So Sound I like thought, you. yeah. Well, it's like you know. I thought their net interest margin, yep. which is essentially the difference between the interest rate they pay, mm-hmm. which is CBA pay to essentially for the money that they borrow yep. either from overseas or from the depositors, mm-hmm. and the interest rate they charge people, right? Mm-hmm. They're making the money on the difference. Yep. So it's like the gross mar- gross profit of a bank, right? Yes. You've got the cost of goods, Effect. which is their interest they pay, mm-hmm. and they've got the retail price, which is what they charge us. Exactly. Yeah. So that I thought would be down. Mm. It wasn't. Impressive. Hey? It was pretty impressive that yeah. it wasn't. Now, uh, it looks like that in the second half, mm. there was some impact. Okay. Okay. And it looks like they make up, made up the difference <laughs> by charging higher interest okay. on investor loans. Sounds ominous. And <laughs> interest-only loans. Yeah, okay. So, so, I don't know how long this can continue. Is, so, I'm watching this. <laughs> so, this is one thing. The other thing that I thought was very interesting and worth keeping an eye on, not mm. just for CBA, but for all the other banks as well, mm. um, is the uptake in, uptick in uh, home loan areas. So, these are right. essentially people who have not paid for over 90 days, mm-hmm. right? So, the bank says, well... If you're three months late... Yep, you're, we, in the, you're in the bad books. You're in the bad books. So, um, what the CBS commentary was that there are pockets of uh, stress in the market, okay. which is not unexpected, mm-hmm. um, with rising essential costs. This is their wording, and limited income growth. <laughs> right, sounds ominous. Um, so, I would say that probably some of this is because of the fact that loans are converting or being converted from interest only to um, interest and principal. Okay, so that's having an impact. Um, costs are also increasing. I mean, I have, you know, I have a home loan and I've seen my home loan costs go up mm-hmm. because I got a letter saying, oh, we're going to increase your that, rate. That helps the banks in interest margins. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's helping their name, but, <laughs> but it's putting pressure on people. Right. So I think the, these are two interesting things. You know, I really don't think the banks are going to deliver growth over the next several years. Mm-hmm. That's my take. Um, kind of bearish on the banks. I would okay. not buy them. I wouldn't. I actually don't short anything, so I would not short them. <laughs> but good. I would not buy them. <laughs> Very good, mate. I thought I, I've got to say I, I think your observations are right. I was kind of, ironically, maybe or just maybe just differently, um, almost impressed that the reason weren't worse. The the uptick was relatively moderate, I thought, and so it's definitely a, a movement, and it's probably at this point, arguably a trend. A couple of quarters in a row, we've seen a mm-hmm. tick up just a little bit. Um, there's no obvious signs to me of, of material change, but this might yet be the thin end of the wedge. And I think we'll probably see that over the next couple of quarters, whether or not those arrears do tick up or whether we're just sort of finding a new a new level. And that probably will, frankly, impact on, on overall bank indebtedness. What continues to worry me is the banks don't provide anywhere near enough future bad debts. We know that these things happen in cycles. You can almost track them. If you, if you imagine two, two, two lines on a graph. The, the bad debt allowances, the, the, the liabilities, the provisions they're supposed to make for bad debts always come after the bad debts turn up. <laughs> and so you get this weird thing with banks where profits are really high right now because they're all saying, no, there's no bad debts. That's fine. We don't need that provision. Mm. And if you reduce a provision, you get to book that as profit. So, hey, mm. look at the money we made. When the tough times come, I guarantee you they'll be underprovided because they always, always, always are. Mm. And so when they're underprovided, there'll be a whole lot of expenses no one expects. Profits will dive and it will say, oh, wow, who could have seen that coming? Mm. And the answer should be all of us. The fact that banks are reducing bad debts is just horribly, horribly, um, it's not very shareholder friendly, it's not very business friendly. It's, mm. it's head in the sand stuff to my mind. And while I don't expect, and you're more bearish on property than I am, I don't expect a major crash. 
I think it's just unreasonable to believe that in a in a rate of in a case, sorry, of rising rates over time, and as you say, people converting from interest only to principal plus interest, the banks should simply be assuming this is coming and providing for it now. Yeah. On the basis that some of the loans they have outstanding now won't get repaid, and they need to allow for that. So I'm not. I don't mind seeing those numbers tick up a little bit. What worries me more is the banks aren't providing for that, so they're probably booking profits that are simply too high to be sustainable. Mm, that's interesting. Modly for money. Mate, line last one, then we're going to get some mailbag. I want to talk to you about Cochlear. Cochlear mm. makes those cochlear implants, funnily enough, company named after part of the ear. There was a pretty good result from Cochlear, I thought, at least on an underlying basis. The Chinese business was a little bit up and down. Tell us the story. So, I mean, I thought the results were good. This is, you know, one of those um, local success stories, you know, local technology that has taken the world by storm. How good uh, is it? This is awesome. I love it. Um, and I'll tell you what, too, we've said this before, I think, on this podcast, but if you wanted to, if you're having a bad day, Google Google a YouTube video of child hearing for the first time. Mm. They, if you don't tear up, you are seriously not human. When you see a little kid whose cochlear implant gets turned on yeah. and they can hear their parents' voices or some sound or something, for the, it is just- Just as a man. I'm getting a little bit emotional just talking about it. It, it is, is a spectacular video. If you haven't seen it, it fools, just just honestly do yourself a favor. When you finish listening to this, don't, not yet, just just wait. When you finish, just Google uh, YouTube you know, child hearing for the first time. It is very, very, very cool. Anyway, keep going. It, it, it is, yeah. Uh, I, I, I really like this company the work they're doing it's really impacting the world which is right. which is the other thing i really like um i thought the growth was okay i wouldn't say it was great mm-hmm. um you know top line was what up like something like nine percent and yep. profits were up like ten percent um you know a lot of profits 250 million dollars worth approximately i think of profit um this is a business that has a huge U.S. focus. So, um, about what fifty percent, almost half the sales go to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, in Asia Pacific is significantly smaller uh, at seventeen percent. And the reason I mentioned this is, uh, uh, personally to me, mm. that's where the, all the opportunity in the future is. Right? Sorry. I mean, they have a penetration like what about sixty percent of the sixty percent of the children mm-hmm. in I think or sixty seventy percent something like that in the developed market Correct. of the children they address. Um, and uh, in the penetration is like what less than ten percent or ten percent ish ten percent ten percent in the emerging market. That's right. So you know, think of rising incomes and you know huge population, right? This is like this is a like a decade long story, and and um, and I think there's a lot of good that they're going to be doing, and this. You know, in the market leader, there's not much competition really in, in mm. the t- you know, technology space and this technology space, which is really good. Mm. Um, yeah, so I mean, on, on a sort of you know, price joining basis, this stock looks expensive, um, but it's one of those things where I think over the long term, you probably will do okay mm. owning a stock like this. So I, I like it. Um, and if you like it, I like it. I'm uh, I'm a fan of cochlear. I think not only are they having lots of implants done, but once you let, let's say you're a, a child of five or you're an adult of 21, if you get something literally surgically implanted inside your head, you're mm. a customer for life. That is right. And while uh, you know there, there's a there's a humanitarian component to this, which is really cool for those people. There's a commercial component too, which means the sound processor that you use to to interpret that sound, the consumables, the upgrades, that you're effectively a customer for life. And so cochlear does an implant today, yeah, and they will make money from that person. And again, that, that's a bit commercial and a bit a bit mercantile, but it's also the reality. They're going to make money from that customer for the rest of that customer's life. Not a bad trade-off for restoring hearing, I don't think. But in any case, the, the sheer kind of financial response and elements of that are really, really, really powerful. And so if you think about how much money is likely to be made, how many different implants, how many different pieces of software and hardware are going to be part of that person's life for the rest of their, the rest of their days, um, it's a pretty impressive business model as well as being very, very good for humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. 
Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, we're going to finish earnings palooza there. We probably will come back to it next week in all, oh, yeah. uh, in all honesty because we're <laughs> going to have more to talk about. But in the meantime, we've got a couple of mailbag questions and I thought we'd get into some of those in a little bit of detail, not, not too much because we'll, we'll try and keep it a bit light. We had a, one question on Twitter from a, a gentleman who's asked that we not use his name, so I won't. He said, hi, Scott, and we'll say hi, Scott and Anirban. I'm a member of Motleyfield Dividend Investor. Thank you for joining. Can you discuss the shortened plan to stop refunding franking credits from July 2019? The implications in general is the higher, sorry, the higher implication for higher dividend stocks and how to position a portfolio for this possibility. That's what he wants to talk about. So what are the implications of it in general? And what are the implications for higher dividend stocks and how to position in general? Do you have a view or do you want me to kick off? Um, I'll give you my, like, you know, I'm not that much of a dividend investor, but I'll give you my sort of high-level view. So the, the plan basically is calling for essentially taking away the, the franking credits, which yep. is a big, I, I would say... Big, uh, the, just just so everyone's clear, just, just to be uh, 100% clear, just the refund component of yeah, those Yeah, the, the refund comp- component, yep. right? Yep. So you're basically able to, you know, get actual cash back Correct. for that. Currently, right? that's right. Um, and, and that's supposed to disappear. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, I personally have mixed feelings about this. Like, I mean, on the one hand, it it is like basically a double taxation thing, mm-hmm. you know. And actually, Australia is quite unique that this double taxation is actually doesn't happen in many other countries. You know, you pay the tax and you pay the tax again, right? Right. Um, so, I mean, in in that sense, you know, what he's basically saying is, well, you know, we'll kind of become like the other parts of the world. Right. So I can see uh, I can see the logic behind that. And then, I mean, the logic might be that, you know, all governments need to raise money and therefore if they need to raise mm-hmm. money, well, you know, we can either increase taxes or we can reduce uh, refunds. Right. <laughs> right. right. That's, that's one option. Um, it's going to impact those people who uh, are retired, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the, I think, the concern here. Correct. And, and um, yeah, uh, I mean, I don't have a, you know, again, as I said, I don't invest significantly in dividend earning franking credit. So, yeah, I I don't either particularly, Doc. I have a, I have a much stronger view than you on this one. I have to say, okay. <clears throat> and this is um, I completely agree with you. By the way, in terms of a government needs to balance its revenue and expenses, and it's entitled to find with with public um, confirmation by election, find the right ways to raise that money. I think it's a really really important part of of a, a civilized society, and, and really something we should we should actually embrace. My issue with that is that I think the current policy, as as explained by the opposition, is one that is, I, I have to say, I, I don't want to be politically particularly political. I've had a, a bash at both sides of politics, and I'll keep doing it where it's relevant, not for a political reason, but for what I think is purely common sense. In this case, they pretty much decided that franking credits are somehow should be treated differently from the rest of the tax we pay. And in every other part of our lives, we pay tax based on either how much we spend, i.e. the GST, or how much we earn, which is income tax. <clears throat> in this case, the government's not saying... We're going to we're going to you know um, we're going to take money away because of how much you earn or don't earn. In fact, this is not means tested at all. They're literally going to take it away altogether. So if you're a pensioner earning a dollar a year, or you're earning a hundred thousand dollars a year, or a million dollars a year, you lose the franking credit refund altogether. And I think it's really short term. I, I, I want either to be kind to the to the, to the Labor Party, either they've misunderstood entirely the system, or to be a little bit less generous. Maybe they're just figuring that. They can paint this as a, as a fat cat tax that people who are getting dividends and money in their super shouldn't get that money because they're already rich enough. Either way, it's a horrible, horrible mistake. I'm all for if they if they decide that superannuation should be taxed more highly, I'm completely okay with that as a concept. We can agree or disagree on whether it should happen, but that's at least fair, right? Tax super at X percent for everybody or over a certain amount of earnings, that's perfectly fine. When you're taxing people effectively or not providing a refund just because of the way that money is earned, in other words, I can earn income 
ta- and pay tax on that. I can have a rental property. I can have anything else, but for some reason, I can have savings in the bank. They are taxed the same way. But if I earn my income through franking credit refunds, and remember the franking credit is the, co- the tax the company's already paid on your behalf, as if you owned the company, which is what it should be, then somehow that is different. And that's where I, I, don't, think, I don't think any politician, any party should be looking at where the source of the income is in and of itself. All income should be treated fairly and equally. And I think just discriminating between where the income is earned, I think, is the problem. Yep. Well, as I said, I don't have much of a view, but I, 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 <laughs> luckily I, I do. Yeah, yeah, but you you do so, and I'll probably agree with your view. All right. Or, well, yeah. one more question for you, Doc. Mm. This one comes from Jack Mang, uh, Magan on Twitter. He says, "Cheers for answering my question on this week this week's podcast. I love the podcast. Thanks, Jack. It's not well, why we, awesome. It's not why we featured Jack's question, but it well, always helps. Should. Feel yeah. free to well, feel free to." As I said, if you, if you don't Ask like another us, question if you don't week. like us, tell us. If you do like us, tell your <laughs> friends. He has well, this thing. He has another question for oh, us. Oh, that's great! And he says, "What are your thoughts on using leverage to buy shares? If you redraw from your home loan, you get a pretty cheap interest rate." Doc, should our <laughs> listeners be using leverage? Should they be borrowing money to buy shares? Okay, so um, <laughs> so I'd say do Easy not. Question. <laughs> I'd say do not use leverage. Do not use leverage. Uh, do not use leverage because I mean leverage can come and bite you later. So so you could you know suppose you you know you you leverage up and you you know draw down um, let's say hundred k from your from your property. Yep. Right. Hypothetically. Uh, hypothetically, <laughs> and now you buy shares. Now, you have to remember that the share market you know over the long term gives you very mm. good returns, but in the share market is also volatile, right? What if your share you know you, that share portfolio drops in half, fifty thousand dollars, right? Uh, how would you feel about that? Not great. Not great, right? <laughs> Especially if <mean, laughs> I had the hundred grand, right? And 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 you're still paying for that hundred grand uh, interest. I mean, the 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 reality. Uh, personally, like this is what I do. I mean, in, you know, we have in Australia a beautiful concept called offset account, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so you keep some money in the offset account, and yeah. what you don't yeah. want to keep in the offset account, you could invest that. And I mean, you know, and that's in a way you can think of that as. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, taking some money away from your um, um, from from the equity that you could have actually put down as a, as a, as a payment to you know finish off your loan or pay it early or whatever you want to do. Right. But yeah, I, I'm not really a fan of 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 borrowing. Of course, I'll say this that you know if you are going to do it and you have a tolerance for doing this, uh, then you know. If you have a choice, I would not take a margin loan from the uh, f- uh, from uh, from from your brokerage because that's going to be the higher interest. Yeah, I would I would draw from uh, the equity in the in the in the property loan because that's a little, at a lower interest, much so, lower interest. Much yeah. So as low as half of it's exactly it's, yeah. It's so cheap. I mean, if you want to do it and you ha- you can manage it, then that's how you would do it. I mean, effectively, mm-hmm. every anybody who has a home loan is doing that in some form or the other, right? I mean, you know, if you're if you're investing and you have a home loan. Right. I mean, you could have actually paid off your home loan fast. You got it. So, so you are doing that in some form. But in, if you if you're lucky enough to actually have a property that you've paid for and you want to take down some of it, you can. It's better than taking uh, the more you know uh, the the brokerage uh, one. But my own personal preference is to is to not do it. But yeah, the answers can you know again it depends. Yeah. The answers really depends. That's my take at least. One of my f- well, so here's the thing. In theory. There is nothing wrong with borrowing to buy shares. It's basically bringing forward a purchase. And in theory, as long as you buy well, the compound result of that should overwhelm the cost of borrowing, particularly at these low rates. Yep. But I will say one of my favorite quotes is a Yogi Berra quote. <laughs> he says, in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. And I think this is what I would say to people. I have this question semi-regularly, and I've, I've talked to groups about it in the past. It's 
everyone says, yeah, yeah, but I'll, I'll, use, it, I'll use it properly. I'll use leverage well. I'll, 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 I know what I'm doing. And it's kind of like that story of, you know, 90% of us think we're better than average drivers, mm. which by definition can't be true. And I think that's where, to my mind, in a, in a theoretical world, there is almost no reason why you shouldn't or you couldn't use low, very low interest debt, i.e. home loan redraw, to buy an asset that's going to compound at a faster rate <laughs> than the interest you're going to pay. So that, in theory, that's perfectly, you put in a spreadsheet, you go, wow, that's amazing. And all of us think we're not going to be that guy. Except, you know what? Most of us are that guy. Mm -hmm. Whether it's because the bank comes calling, whether it's because you get in, you do a little bit now, a little bit more, a little bit more, and you get really confident. And the day before the next you know, market meltdown, you put the last dollar of debt in because I'm good at this. Now I know what I'm doing. It is just a slippery slope and it's not necessary. I'll throw one more quote to finish off, Doc. Warren Buffett talked about uh, the, the guys, I think it was long-term capital management, one yeah. of the great financial blow-ups of the 80s or 90s. They had Nobel Prize winners on there. They had, what, two or three Nobel oh, Prize winners? half a dozen. They had half a dozen? Awesome. Smart, smart people. Smart people. And he talked about them. He said, this is the mistake they made. They gambled what they had and needed for what they didn't have and didn't need. In mm -hmm. other words, you don't need to take those risks. There is simply not enough upside because if you've got to go back to square one, the challenge of getting back to even where you are now, let alone getting ahead from here, it's just not worth it. Life is too short. Your income earning potential period, yet the time, your working life is just way too short. If I had to go back to square one now, I, I will have something around a third of what I would have if I don't have to go to square one from now, given the same likely returns moving forward, because the compounding works, as we know, on larger and larger amounts of money. If you just leave it to compound, there's simply no need to take that risk. So, I, I get the question. Theoretically, it's possible. By all means, enjoy the theoretical thought. Just don't do it. It's really, really, really not worth the pain, the grief, and the potential downside for the upside you might get. Agree. Doc, this is one of our longest ever podcasts, but I hope it's been interesting for our listeners. We covered a heap of earnings, a couple of really, really great questions. Unfortunately for everybody, I'm going to have to leave the high horse and the stable because as much as I'd love to, I can't bring myself to do it and Liam would throw something at me across the producer's desk. So... That's it for this week, fools. But before we go, don't forget, you can and you should subscribe to the Motley Fool Money, Money Podcast via iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And please, if you like what we're doing, you think other people should find out about it too, give us a rating. Maybe throw us, oh, you know, five stars out of five. Maybe it might be nice. If you think we should deserve three or four, give us five anyway, because we're nice blokes and we really would appreciate it. We'll take five stars. We will indeed. Other than that, have a great week, fools. We'll be back with you next week. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.